Hi, my name is Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Grab your Bible this morning and turn in your Bible to uh, Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. Now I'm going to ask you one more time, if you would stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. If you're not able, that's okay. God knows your heart. Verse 11 says, And as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. Verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Verse 20. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. 24. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you. That to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Father, please speak to us today. And teach us what it means in this passage. What you're trying to say to us, Lord. This, your word, this, your word right here in Luke chapter 19 is God breathed, profitable, it's good for us. Every dot, every T crossed, every part of your word is valuable to your people. And Lord, this morning, 
in a weird passage, we want to hear from you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right, please be seated. Weird passage, right? You, you get done and you go, and bring those enemies and we'll slaughter them. And in Jesus' name, let's go home. Be encouraged. Amen. All right. Uh, this is an odd passage, and it kind of causes us to think about Jesus maybe a little differently than we typically think about Jesus. Most of the time we think about Jesus, we think about Jesus the way that we have pictured him in our mind's eye, maybe the way that portraits or pictures portray him that we might have hanging around our house or our church. He tends to have long feathery hair and he's got a sheep over his shoulders and he is just very good looking, right? But And it's true that he loves, but it's also there are other parts of Jesus that we don't often experience or think about as much because we don't like to think about them as much. This passage is one of those. And we're going to look at today, uh, we've been talking about faith for a long time. This will be our last one on the topic of faith. Before next week, we start with a triumphal entry and we, uh, we look at experiencing the real Jesus. Experiencing the real Jesus in, from the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so that's where we're going to be next week. But today, faith. He, Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. And so if that's true, and it is, we, we must ask ourselves, okay, what does faith look like that pleases the Lord? And I want to have that faith, and I pray that you want to have that faith today. So today we're talking about the idea of faith in the in-between. Faith in the in-between. That's weird, Ryan. What are we in-between? Well, we're in-between one good thing that has happened and another really good thing that has happened. Now, I'm an Auburn football fan, and I'm in the in-between. I'm still riding. I think it was 2008 when we won a national championship. That was 2010. I apologize, Miss Kia. Don't throw anything at me. She's an Auburn fan with me. There are a few of us up here. But uh, I'm still riding that one. And the motto of Auburn right now is there's always next year. And so before the season's ever started, we're already looking forward to the next good thing that's going to happen. Now, here's what I mean by the in-between. We live... The Bible portrays a lot of pictures of the in-between, living in the in-between. So maybe the one out of Exodus is we live between the the slavery that we were enslaved to in Egypt, we live between there and the promised land. We live in the wilderness right now. We live in the kingdom that has been initiated by the coming of Jesus, but in the kingdom that has not yet been consummated by His second coming. We live in the in-between. We live right there. We live between Jesus' first coming and His second coming. And we know that although these days are difficult, when the kingdom comes in its fullness, when Jesus returns, it will be a glorious day. It will be a great and, as the Bible says, a great and terrifying day. And so that's what I mean. Living in the in-between, we live there, and what does faith in the in-between look like? Now, the in-between, how many of you have ever felt like you were in-between? I'm living in a season of wilderness. I'm living in a season where I know the promises of God, 
yet have not received all of God's promises. I know there's healing coming one day when God brings me to heaven, but this body is falling apart. Can I get a witness? I'm living in the in-between, and I can't wait for that day. I'm so thankful for what Jesus has done for me, yet I can't wait for when He returns for me. I'm living in the in-between. What does that faith look like? And here in this passage, I believe we get a picture. And I just want to kind of walk through it with you, give a little brief overview, and then I'm going to come to a point of focus. Okay, so in verse 12, the noble man goes into a far country. I love what it says to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, understand that Jesus is the nobleman in this story. This is all about Jesus. And the nobleman um, goes off to a, a far country to, a, to receive for himself a kingdom, and then he's going to return. In verse 13, he gave his servants gifts, and he told them to engage in business until he Returns And in verse 14, it goes on to say his citizens hated him, sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, verse 15, having received the kingdom, he ordered the servants, give account. I want to know what you've done with what I left you with. I want to know, in quotes, verse 15, what you gained by doing business. In verse 16 to 19, you see each of them give a report. Two really positive reports, one not good report. Those who were faithful were good stewards of the master's resources, and there was an unfaithful one, a faithless one, and he did not receive a reward, but rather he received judgment. Verse 20 and 21, he comes to him, this one who had the one, and he says, Master, I had one mina, I laid it away in a handkerchief. I was afraid of you because look at what it says in verse 21. I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. And in verse 22 and 23... The master looks at him and says, I'm going to condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you at least put it in the bank? The bank would have done better than you did. Now, you and I both uh, might have some investments in our world or maybe in the stock market. And you look at the interest that the bank is bringing and maybe the interest that the stock market has brought over the past year and you go there's a huge difference but at least in the bank he got would have gotten something he did nothing he did nothing because i want you to hear me he thought he knew his master he thought he knew his master and instead of doing something with it he just took it and he laid it aside well the master the nobleman says hey i want you to take his mina away and i want you to give it to the one who's got 10 minas Well, that doesn't seem fair, Lord. He's already got ten. Well, to the one who has, more will be given. The one who doesn't, everything will be taken away. Verse 26 and 27. The faithful 
will have more to steward, and the faithless will have nothing. Reward is coming for the faithful, and judgment for the faithless. So that's kind of the parable today in Ryan's words. All right? And so here is what I want you to understand of why in the world is Jesus telling this parable? Why is he telling this parable at this moment? Okay, picture with me. Jesus has just come from Jericho uh, with Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he? Y'all with me? He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Didn't the kids do a sweet little job singing that last week? They did a great job. Now, he's coming from Jericho, and he is, he is on his way up the ascent into Jerusalem, some 20, 21 miles that he's got to climb up the mountain range to get to Jerusalem because he wants to be there for the Passover. And he's going to have a triumphal entry. He's coming in as King of kings and Lord of lords into Jerusalem. And he's telling this parable in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because they were near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So here's what the disciples thought. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Finally, he's going to bust some heads. He's going to get Rome out of there. He's going to whoop all of them. He's going to show them up. Jesus is coming in to take his throne down with Rome. Finally. But Jesus told a parable about a nobleman who went on a long journey to receive a kingdom that belonged to him. He was going to receive a kingdom for himself. There would be a time period. And then the king or the nobleman would return. So this is the reason for this parable. In verse 14, is something very important that for us to understand. It says, his citizens hated him. Why? Well, down later in verse 20 and 21, it tells us why they hated him. Because they thought that he was severe. They thought he was severe. They didn't want his reign over them because of what they perceived they knew about him. See, the servant thought he knew the master, but did he know his master at all? No. His actions proved that he didn't know his master. Now, many of us grew up in a time where God was a God of hellfire and brimstone. And that was the only God, and the goal of the pastor was literally to scare the you-know-what out of you every Sunday morning so that you would not go to hell. And some of you maybe even sympathize with this servant in the story who thought they knew the master, but they're afraid of the master. They don't love the master. And even though they're under the master's kingship or or rulership, they don't want him to reign over them because they think all he is is severe. And many of us have a picture in our brains that God is some old man on a throne with a magnifying glass and a lightning bolt, and he's just waiting for you to slip up so he can get you. Maybe you grew up in a house that that was your understanding. Maybe you grew up in a one-sided picture of God. And I want you to understand that God is a God of justice. He is a God of wrath. He is a God who will one day come back and Um, bring judgment on people, but He is also a God of mercy and grace. 
He is not one or the other, and for us to see only one side in the Scriptures is to make a lopsided picture of God. One of the problems with the church today is not the hellfire and brimstone part, but that we've swung so far to the other side that God is only love. He is only grace, and He would never want you to be unhappy. So you just do what you want because God only loves you. And we've forgotten that God is also just, and He is also a judge. He is also the lawgiver, and one day He's going to return to hold people accountable. It's, which one is it? And my answer is, yes. And that answer frustrates religious people. Because it's not an either-or picture. God is such a big, infinite God that my little pea brain can't wrap around His infinite, glorious nature. And so I want you to see today in this passage that God is a God of justice. He is a God of wrath. But right now in the in-between, He is also a God of mercy. He is a God of mercy. So the one servant, he was afraid he didn't do anything. He thought he knew his master, but he didn't know his master. This man showed his hatred and his rebellion for his master, not by acting out, but by doing nothing at all. His own words, or, or what he supposed that he knew about his master, Jesus said, your own words will condemn you. And he brought upon himself a terrible judgment. Okay, so... Jesus is telling this parable because, because everybody's thinking, okay, Jesus is coming in Jerusalem. It's about to get good. Get the popcorn out. Buckle up. It's going to get fun when he gets to Jerusalem. He's going to ride in on his noble steed, his army in tow, and he's going to get those Romans. Jesus says, no, like the master in this story, Jesus is going away to receive the kingdom that rightfully belongs to him. And afterward, when the time comes, he will return as king of kings and lord of lords. And that is what it means to live in the in-between. Jesus has come into Jerusalem. He has initiated his kingdom. But his kingdom has not come in its fullness just yet. I can't wait for that day where the lion lays down next to the lamb. I can't wait for that day where sickness is destroyed, where all things are made new, where broken bodies will be restored, where there will not be a single tear cried from sadness. Can't wait for that day, but that's not the day that we currently live in. We live in the in-between. See, like the master in the story, Jesus said, I am coming into my kingdom, but not the way that you think I'm coming into my kingdom. I'm going to go away for a little while. I'm going to come to my, into my kingdom in humility. I'm going to go away, but then I will return in glory. But unlike the master in the story, Jesus is not only severe. He is gentle. He is lowly of heart. He is grace. Jesus is grace in the flesh. He is mercy with hands and feet. Jesus is also a righteous judge who will return to reward the faithful and condemn the faithless. And Jesus is saying to them, while I'm gone, securing my kingdom, be busy about my business. 
Be busy about my business. Steward well my resources. Live as though I'm with you and I'm returning tomorrow. Live like you are, are one who has to give account. See, faith in the in-between means fixing our hope on Jesus' return while being rooted in our responsibility to, re, to steward Armina well. Armina could be many things. In this, it was a, a, a piece of money. It was a few months' wages for a laborer. In this day and time, it could have been anywhere between ten and $15,000. I don't know what our, our mina is exactly. It could be many things. It could be our time, steward it well. It could be our money, our children, our families, gifts, talents, our retirement. It could be all of those things. And Jesus is looking at you and he says, what I've given you, steward it well. Steward it knowing that I'm coming back. Steward it well knowing that you're going to give an account for what I've given you. Steward it well like you will have to give an account. Steward it. Our goal should be to use each of these minas in the master's absence so there will be an eternal eternal, uh, return on investment when the master returns. But in the context of the book, Jesus in verses 1 to 10, chapter 19, verse 1 to 10, Jesus reveals his mission. He says, I have come to seek and save that which is lost. Look at me, everybody. Look at me. I need your eyes. I don't know where you stand with the Lord. I don't know if you would say that I'm lost or I'm found. But wherever you are, no matter how lost you feel today, I want you to understand that Jesus loves you and He came for you. He came to seek and save. I want you to understand that if you're in the hearing of my voice, that Jesus is seeking for you today. He is also wanting to save you today. That means you need saving. We need a rescuer. He came to seek and save the lost. And in the context of the book, in verses 1 to 10, we learn about Jesus' mission. And in verses um, 28 to verse 40, we learn about Jesus' identity. He comes riding in on a humble donkey into Jerusalem, down the Mount of Olives. And they come and they proclaim, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna! Glory to God in the highest. And Jesus is the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And so based on the context of the passage, I think the mina is best described not as money or time or talents or or resources. I believe the mina is the gospel of Jesus' mission and identity. It is the gospel here that I believe the scriptures are encouraging us to steward well. So here's a question that I want you to ask yourself today. What are you living for in the in-between? What are you living for in the in-between? What I mean is what gets you out of bed in the morning? What makes you get out of bed, take a shower, put on your face, Put your shoes on and leave the house. What motivates you every day? What brings you the greatest joy and amount of pleasure in your life? 
And if, if you can answer that question, I would tell you that's probably what you're living for. That is the, the God that you have in your life. Most of us, we have about 80 years maximum from the time that Jesus comes into our heart till the time that Jesus returns for us. And we're going to spend our days living for something. We're going to spend our days worshiping something. You, whether it's the Lord or, or something else, we're going to spend our time worshiping. We are going to do what God has created us to do. He's created us to serve Him. And whether we serve Him, if we don't serve Him, we're going to serve somebody or something. And it might be travel. It might be pleasure. It might be money. It might be retirement. It might be moving up the ladder. It might be children. It might be grandchildren. I don't know what it might be in your life. Now, you might say, Ryan, are those things evil? No, those things aren't evil. Grandchildren are good things, amen? Children are a blessing from the Lord. They also make your hair fall out. Amen. Good jobs are good. Retirement's a good thing. Any retired people out there, amen? Retirement's good. Well, listen, every one of those things, although it's good, makes a really pitiful God makes a really bad Lord or ruler or king or whatever you want to call it. And some of us, we think like the last servant in this passage. Okay, all right, Ryan. Uh, my goal in life is don't get too risky. Don't, don't screw up the good stuff. Do good things. Don't do bad things. Hold the line. I just got to hold the line. I got to keep the status quo. And, and I, I don't need to rock the boat. And I want you to understand that in a lot of our lives, that, that thinking permeates the way that we live. Don't, my goal in life, don't do bad stuff, do good things. Don't rock the boat a whole lot. How much does that influence the church's thinking? A ton. Sometimes we think the, the goal of a church is don't be immoral. Be minimally, minimally obedient. Remember, the safest place is in the center of God's will. Don't take risks. But in this parable, this is disobedience veiled in prudence, veiled in wisdom. And God is not pleased with it. So many of us, we fall into that category. So many people think that the goal of Christianity is to minimize risk, just to be wise and, and do your best not to sin. I want you to understand that that thinking is A, unbiblical, and B, that thinking has never changed the world. That kind of thinking has never made a person go, you know what, the Jesus that you've got, I want him. That kind of thinking has never spurred a fire in somebody, a, a, a hunger or a thirst in somebody that has made them long for the kind of relationship with God that you have. And in this passage, Jesus likens that kind of thinking to rebellion against God's rule in our lives. It doesn't reveal a love for God, but rather it reveals our hatred for Him.
And in the passage, that kind of thinking yields surprising results. What do you mean? What do you think that last servant expected? (laughs) Master, I knew that you were a hard guy. Knew that you were severe. So, here's what I did. I took your mina. I buried it in a handkerchief. I kept it laid away. It's safe. Don't worry about it. I got it for you. Whenever you want it, I'll return it to you. What do you think he was expecting? Good job, buddy. Way to go. That world's crazy out there. I'm, you, you made a wise decision. I'm glad I've got what was mine. But that's not exactly what happened, is it? He thought he'd be applauded, but instead, the nobleman condemned him to death. Is that surprising to you? It's shocking to me. I want you to understand, church family, listen to me. I've been praying all week long that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear today. I want you to hear that hell will be filled with people who did not drink, they did not cuss, they did not sleep around, they did not steal. They were good folks, they were moral, they went to church. Hell will be filled with those people. Why? Because none of those things, not a single one of those things makes you a Christian. Some people, we try to make Christianity about behavior. Do good, don't do bad. Check. I'm a Christian then, right? No. No. See, what we learn in this parable is that in the in-between, Jesus is king. And he's coming again. Faith in the in-between means that each one of us have a decision to make about Jesus. In the story, Jesus is the master and the mina is his gospel, his identity, and his mission. The biggest question for you and for me today is what are you going to do with Jesus? What am I going to do with Jesus? Tim Keller says it this way. He says, if Jesus is king, crown him or kill him. Those are the only two options. Crown him as king. Kill him as heretic. You can't come to Jesus like those in the parable with veiled contempt. You can't come to Jesus and even just like him or have some fondness for him. Yeah, he's all right, dude. I think I'll go with him. He is, listen to me, he is king of kings. He is king of glory. He is ancient of days. We've either got to crown him or kill him. Indifference isn't an option in our lives. And some of us are indifferent to the king of glory. Indifferent. We live our lives as if he does not exist, even though with our mouths we confess his existence. This king is a righteous judge to whom we will all give an account. But the beauty of this king, our King Jesus, the beauty of our king is that he is the just and the justifier of the one who puts faith in him. Our king comes to reveal our guilt, but to die for our guilt. 
Our King comes to reveal our sin and then suffer under its weight on the cross so that His servants, those who trust Him in faith, might be set free from the burden of sin. Our King came to declare the greatness of our sin's debt and then to pay our debt in full with a broken body and His own precious shed blood. Our King is unlike any king. Our King came to show us that we live under the curse of the law, but then came to remove the curse from us by becoming our curse and dying on a tree because Galatians chapter 3 quotes Leviticus that says, Cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. He came to redeem those from that curse who by faith would crown Jesus Christ as King of kings. What are you going to do with Jesus? Listen to me, church family. Hear my heart. Indifference isn't an option. You have two choices. You can crown him as king of your life or you can kill him. And when he comes into Jerusalem, that's exactly what we find that the crowds did. They either crowned him as king or killed him. Those are your only two options. What are you going to do with Jesus? Have you crowned Jesus as king of your heart and surrendered to his sovereign rule. Is Jesus your king? I didn't say, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross? I said, have you crowned him as king of kings in your life? He can't be anything other. How does that change my life? What does this have to do with me? has everything to do with me. Let me tell you a story of the early church. In Acts chapter 1, the early church is behind closed doors hiding. Jesus had just ascended to the Father. Oh, we thought this was the Messiah who was going to come and restore the kingdom of Israel. Yet he ascended, just like the nobleman. He went away into a far country to receive the kingdom for himself that belonged to him. He's going to a far country. Jesus has ascended to heaven. And they go and they hide themselves away in an upper room. Which if you go to Jerusalem with us next year, you'll be able to walk in that very upper room. And he, they hide, 120 of them, in this upper room. They're terrified of the outside world. And what it might mean for them as newly or new Christians to to live in light of that world. Does that feel familiar to us at all? I feel like that's exactly the story of our churches. That many times church is about going and gathering here, but it has nothing to do with mission. Church is a gathering, but church is also ascending out. This is a meaningful time for us to be together, but we are here together so that we might go out there and minister the gospel of Jesus. But what is much of the church doing? We're filled with fear of the outside world. But then in Acts chapter 2, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes in and he applies the work of Jesus and he fills every disciple with power and the very same disciples who were hiding in the upper room burst out of the room in into the streets and fill Jerusalem with the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ see faith in the in-between for you and for me looks like stewarding the gospel 
in our world at the risk of loss, of cost, of rejection by both the lost and even the religious, and even at the risk of our life. That's what stewarding the gospel means. And that is how we live by faith in the in-between. Did you know that our world needs Jesus? Did you know that? Did you, did you know that there are billions of people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ around our world? They don't even know that he came the first time. And all we're doing is hold up, wait for him to return the second time. There are people in our county that don't understand the gospel of Jesus. They might not have even ever heard that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There are people dying. Our world needs Jesus. They need to hear about what we sing about marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Our world needs Jesus. But many, listen to me church, many of them are dying and going to an eternity separated from God because we've taken our mina and we've laid it aside in a handkerchief. Well, Ryan, Seneca Baptist Church is growing. Yes, it is. Amen. Praise God. It's growing. People are coming to join Seneca Baptist Church. And I'm so thankful for every one of you who have come to Seneca Baptist Church under the Lord's leadership. You have come here and you have locked arm in arm with the people of God here at Seneca Baptist Church. I believe he's doing great things at Seneca Baptist Church, but he is not doing it for our sake, but for his kingdom's sake. He is building his church. It never says, I will grow my church to an appropriate size. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen, somebody. Are y'all awake out there? He is building his church so that we might be a missionary force that the gates of hell will tremble at. Not because of our power. Not because of our words, but because of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside every believer. But we've got our handkerchief and our mina rolled up inside it. And we're hunkered down waiting on Jesus to come back while the world is dying around us. Membership at, X, at SBC is not our highest priority. Membership in the kingdom is our highest priority. Erwin Lutzer, I think I have this quote up here, in a book called When a Nation Forgets God, says the return of Christ is a cherished dream of every Christian, but meanwhile, we have a job to do. And rather than fearing what is to come, we need to see the unfolding future as an opportunity to bring glory to God through our steadfast commitment to what will never pass away. And let me tell you something, God's gospel will never pass away. His kingdom is an unshakable kingdom to which we would do well if we devoted our entire lives to. Personally, how are you doing stewarding the mina that God has given you, His gospel? What are you doing with it?
And for you, that might mean, have I surrendered to the gospel? Have I trusted in Jesus as Savior? Or have I crowned Jesus as King? That could also mean, who are you sharing the gospel with? Do you remember? You remember? The Bible essentially teaches us that we are beggars looking for a bite of bread, and the bread of life came into our life, and all we're trying to do is for one beggar to show another beggar where to get a loaf of bread. That's all we're trying to do. Who are you sharing the gospel with? Who are you stewarding the gospel with right now? Corporately, here at Seneca Baptist Church, we have been given much. Amen? God has given Seneca Baptist a bunch of minas. A bunch of them. How are we stewarding what God's given us for the sake of the gospel? How are we stewarding what God's given us to make disciples of all nations? You know, Coney County and around the world. I want you to understand, this is not a sermon about money. This is a sermon about our heart. Listen, I just want to say it again. God's never lacking money and going, hey, can I have a loan? God wants your heart. And when He's got your heart, He's got everything in your life. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need our money. It's about our hearts and the throne that resides inside of our hearts. And who is seated on that throne? So we've got to ask ourselves today, is Jesus the kind of king worthy of all of our obedience? Is he the kind of king that's worthy of all of our hearts? Is he the kind of king that I'd risk everything for? Is he the kind of king that I'd give away the rest of my years to serve? Is he the kind of king that I'm willing to risk looking like a fool to the world so that when he returns with his consummated kingdom, he will say to you and to me, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The question for today is, what are you going to do with Jesus in the in-between? And there's a kind of faith that pleases him. And there's a kind of faithlessness that doesn't. Let's pray. Lord, I must confess. That my heart. Is many times divided. That my heart 
many times has another king on the throne. Father, I don't have this sermon lived out perfectly in my life. I don't have it together, but Lord, what I want is that when I get up off my knees, that I would rededicate myself to you, that I would surrender once again to your kingship. That I would crown you in my life. I pray for people in this room who are struggling with what to do with Jesus. That you right now would meet with them and cause them by your grace to respond how you're leading them to respond. There's some in this room who need to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that we serve a humble King who came to die and now reigns forever. And there are others of us in this room who need to repent and turn back to you. Father, I, I pray that if you're even leading someone to join Seneca Baptist today, that your will would be done. We love you, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing here at our church. In Christ's name, lead us to you. Amen.